Hey folks, and welcome to the Deconstructor of Fund podcast. Your host today, Mishka Katkov, and we are going to talk about reaching lower CPI after IDFA deprecation. Our guests today, Jesse Lempianen, CEO of Geek Lab, and Joe Sheppi, CEO of 12 Trades. Now, I've personally used both of the services these, these men represent and have built, so this is going to be a, a fun podcast, a sort of a customer testimonial, if you will. And the topics we're going to talk about is why marketability matters and when you should start optimizing for it. How will the IDFA deprecation affect optimization of marketability? What alternative ways should publishers look into creating audiences? How is the measurement of creative performance going to change? And is the role of marketability more or less important post-IDFA? Now, if you're not a marketing person, don't get afraid. I'm not either. I literally just ran my first campaigns on my own using these two services uh, a short while ago. So this this episode is going to look into the marketability. And by marketability, I mean lowering CPI. It's going to look at lowering the CPI, making your business case from a very product perspective. So I think you're going to value this. And I know I did. And yes, without further ado, our magnificent sponsors and Joe as well as yes. We all know it. Mobile marketing is going through a paradigm shift. With the industry moving towards a more aggregate way of measuring marketing efforts, marketers' ability to measure and understand the impact of their marketing investments is further curtailed. AppsFlyer, though, is not sitting on the sidelines. The company has set a goal to help their customers and the entire mobile ecosystem to successfully navigate the new era of mobile marketing. And that's where AppsFlyer's latest product, the incrementality solution, comes to play. It's a product that truly empowers marketers to gain a better understanding of the real value that their marketing efforts hold. AppsFlyer's incrementality solution is built around remarketing. It simplifies the process of designing, executing, and analyzing incremental lift tests at scale, which previously was something that only the biggest players on the market were able to do. With, with incrementality, marketers can focus on the end goal of their test without actually having to worry about the heavy lifting that comes with it. To learn more about incrementality and to read the success stories from publishers like Kabam, I suggest that you head out to appsflyers.com. Really at Jam City, we want to treat the players first and foremost. We really care about their experiences. That comes down to ad quality and what type of ads they're seeing. We want to make sure that the performance is there. A waterfall management does take a lot of time. The big drawback is the back and forth with networks, obviously the uh, analysis behind it, and not always is the juice worth the squeeze, so to speak. That was Kyle. Kyle is the Senior Director of Ad Monetization from Jam City, and he uses IronSource's platform to automate his monetization and grow game revenue. That is time that is really maximized and could theoretically be a 50 to 100% to 2x increase in overall ad revenue. Theoretically, Level Play just automates a lot of that. That is a huge time sink for a lot of our teams. Want to grow like Jam City? Get the SDK on ironslc.com. That's ironslc.com. What's up, guys? Super happy to have you here just before the apocalypse hits. So this podcast is being recorded uh, literally on the day of the election. 
So welcome Jesse Lempiainen. <laughs> hey, Jesse. Hey, thanks for having us. And and Joe, Joe, the other kind of like a one quarter of a fin, if I would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, one fourth, I guess technically, genetically speaking, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so Joe is sitting nicely with his little lemon um, hoodie. I can see it from here. Don't worry, I I know, I know a little lemon when I see one. <laughs> Comfortable. <laughs> yeah, they're super comfortable. And today we're going to talk about not about little lemons, but we're talking. To, we're going to talk about a really important topic, which is reaching lower CPIs after IDFA depreciation. And this is a boring title. The way I would like to describe this discussion is how to make a Molotov, like a UA Molotov cocktail. So and the way I'm putting it in that way because I've actually personally used both of your services and. and both in, at, in my previous workplace and currently in the startup. And the results, so Joe, you don't know our results, but uh, you know, but um, yes, it knows our results because he can see the, uh, yep. the, the funnel conversions, he can see the IPMs and, and they have been fantastic. So without going into details, because I don't wanna blow our theme tests, uh, what we did using 12 traits and Geek Lab is this. So we started off with 12 traits and Joe, you helped us a lot identifying our core audience, especially since we're looking at benchmarks from AAA and how that audience actually behaves on mobile. So there's not nowhere that kind of information we would have gotten. And that helped us to identify a couple of key segments, basically our primary and secondary audience. And we we're really able to kind of hone in on what the traits are for that audience. Then we used a little bit of creative thinking uh, in, in generate a lot of themes. So yes, it was helping us out a lot with how do you test a theme and what is the most cost-effective way to test it? So naturally we set up certain scenes in, in Unity, put in the characters and just overpainted in, in different, uh, different settings. So that has allow, allowed us to create multiple different screens that look the same, but had actually a different setting. And then we use 12 traits to generate the audience into the Facebook campaign manager. So thank you, Yessa, for <laughs> walking me through how to run campaigns. And I finally, I'm not talking about campaigns. I actually run campaigns. <laughs> and it was really easy to get the audience. It just, it just appeared uh, there in the Facebook account. I just pressed the button and it came out of 12 traits. And we, again, without going into details, it was US audience. It was male, 18 to 39. Uh, very, very core. So we were, we were probably, you know, expecting pretty high CPIs. The theme, this, themes that we tried were so, certain ones were kind of like kind of new and certain ones were true and tested and everything in between. And as a result, using both of your services, we reached like 90 cent CPIs on, on a theme test, which really, really helped us to hone in on the right themes, as well as prove certain themes that we shouldn't be pursuing. So this is what I call the Molotov cocktail. Like for a startup, it was absolutely essential because now we can not only hone in on what the setting should be for the game, because if you, you know, the differences between the CPIs were sixfold, like the worst was six times more expensive than the, the cheapest one. And even the second one was twice as expensive as the, as the first one. So these have huge implications on not only the business case, but it also has huge implications on developing the game because not only do we, are we set on a theme and we don't have to second guess ourselves? Of course, we'll be doing more and more creative optimization, but the, uh, the information about the player base from 12 traits really helped us to turn the conversation from not 
what we feel or like I'm as a player or when I play these games or have, you know, that kind of a discussion to more like, well, our primary audience really wants to be productive. That's their number one trade. So how do we implement that? And then there's more and more information that you can find from 12 trades. And of course they use that information again to use Geek Lab to make a survey, to ask the players. So kind of using both Geek Lab and, and 12 trades, it was this complimentary Molotov cocktail that, that kind of set everything on fire in a good way. So, so today I want to talk about what happens after IDFA. And, you know, let's start with yes, like, you know, why the marketability really matters and when you should start optimizing for it. Like, did we did it? Did we do it at the right time or could you do it later? So what's your, what's your take on it? Right. Um, yeah. First, first kind of defining marketability, marketability, the, the big buzzword everyone keeps talking about, like what it truly means, it, it's the appeal among your target audience. So, so how well it actually resonates with, with your target audience. And, and does it matter? Well, ultimately there's two ways of kind of increasing your revenue. One is to either improve your monetization. Second one is to acquire users like cheaper so that like you don't have to monetize them that high. Obviously you want to do both, but, but uh, like I said, marketability is the thing that allows you to, to acquire the users cheaper and, and therefore it's, it's extremely important. And, and what you guys did was, was totally on point. It's, it's, it's something you, you should start to optimize and think about like immediately when you, when you pitch your first game idea, you, you have, when you have like sort of figured out like who your target audience is, who you're making this game for, uh, immediately just like you guys did start and test it and and it's so much easier to implement those learnings uh before you have uh 70 characters in uh with a certain art style that you happen to find out after 70 characters that okay this is actually something that our target audience do not like as much as they would like something else like it can be mediocre but but you, you want to find the the golden angle uh so so just like you guys did as yeah. soon as just it's it's possible yeah and, and a lot of like people from from like let's say you're a small prototyping team or, or you don't have enough art assets so in our case like yes I gave this advice actually so you said like just uh purchase existing assets and do paint overs from them as long as you get the setting right and my previous experience from marketability wasn't actually too positive because in one of the companies that I work at, we did marketability test early, but it was more like a setting test where we had set screens and they would show, let's say you're testing a zombies theme. You would have, you know, guys and a girl on top of the car shooting down zombies that are climbing on top of, that is not the game. That is illustration. So what we did is we really, really like made the gameplay images. Like they were purely gameplay images. There was a, you know, I'm not going to go into details of what we're making, but they looked exactly like it looks in the game. So, so that, that really helped. Now, Joe, you guys right. are bringing more features to test marketability in 12 trades. Like, like what's your opinion on, on testing early and, and um, yeah. And what are the implications there? Yeah. So you really can't start soon enough. And that's just period. Like the last thing you want is your development costs to become your research budget. And even before we started 12 Traits, I was heading up UX at Big Fish Games. Um, we had a couple multi-million dollar of spend games that by the time they went to the app store, 
marketability was terrible and we had to kill them. And that's millions and millions of dollars that was spent because the marketability research wasn't done properly. And effectively, if you're looking at how do I do this correctly, you actually have to start with your, your audience and your beachhead. Um, and one of the things that we have a unique advantage of at 12 Traits is you could say, for example, I'm making a game in the first person shooter space and I really want to see who the different major groups are of people that are in that space. If you can't start with who's my beachhead audience or who's my core audience, you also can't know how big is the market that I'm actually going to be able to market to. So effectively, if you're using, you know, tools like App Annie, like that's, that's you can do kind of market sizing stuff, but it's not going to be, you're, you're, at the end of the day, there's people that play um, Call of Duty that play Candy Crush. Like, let's be very honest about this. Um, so if we're looking at first starting with who's our, who's our audience, who are the people that are there? And then is that a growing market? Is that a decreasing market? We need to start with that. So we need to understand what's the market that we're going into? What's the potential of our game and our product within that? And then moving to that next step, you know, we have, we see a lot of digital assets get launched through Facebook within our, within our tool. And I mean, we'll see assets that get clicked on um, in insane amounts and get really incredible installs, but have very terrible ROAS. So that's the perfect example of just taking, you know, trying to boil the ocean, just taking um, art assets and trying to A-B test different things. And I think that was to the point of actually getting closer to gameplay and things like that. Um, what we're looking for is what resonates with the actual user that is likely to have a high quality install and have high levels of, of LTV. And I think that's where with, with 12 traits, if you can see like the different psychological groups, um, because that's maybe something important to note. If you actually look at all major genres, uh, so let's say like strategy versus puzzle, uh, and you look at, there's gonna be some different demographic information, but if you go a level deeper than that and just start to look at like interest data, not even psychological data yet, it's gonna be completely muddy and gray because there's so many, like there is no casual player, there is no mid-core player. So going that layer deeper and then saying like kind of what our algorithm does is like the sorting hat in Harry Potter where it's like, these are the Slytherins, these are the, you know, Pufflepuffs, et cetera. And when you go that layer deeper, there is immense granularity in genres, in subgenres. And by having that and then being able to say, you know, and I think this is maybe an important piece to, bring in here, 47% um, approximately, there's market data, is, is how we build our creative in terms of improving ROAS, improving conversion, improving click-throughs, um, you know, only 9% is related to targeting actually. And that's, all, we'll save that conversation for a little bit later, I think in the podcast, but um, not to, yeah, not to go into this too much, but I think with the marketability component, what's nice is you can take then creative that, and this is the, you know, people say this is old school, but this is, this is the reality of the future of where we're going and how creative has always been on make creative. That's going to resonate then with your core audience that, you know, is the biggest market potential rather than just AB testing anything. Now you're getting rid of this local maximum problem. Um, and now when you're AB testing, you can actually get this idea, not just of okay, what are the click-throughs and, and how, how much marketability potential do we have, but also how really how big is my market here and how much do I expand within, within that market? So 
Um, long story short, not soon enough. And if you're not knowing your audience and not A-B testing your way through it, uh, I think that's where, you know, we're kind of like between Yesa and us, kind of like a handoff. So you can start with us and then hand it off to you know, Geek Lab. And it's a really nice way of being able to nail that before you go through the pain of spending one to two years developing something only to find out that there's no market. Yeah, and I really like you know? the uh, the way that you can make your, that not you don't actually make it, the, uh, the segments appear in 12 trades and how you're able to transfer those segments directly to the Facebook um, campaign manager. And yeah. the certain things that came out, like, again, I was going for a very core audience and there were things that, <laughs> that they liked that I would have never guessed, like baking. Baking was big. <laughs> I was like, what are these dudes <laughs> doing baking? And then, cause I'm kind of in that audience and by kind of I am, I was like, damn, I really do like baking, but I would never, <laughs> So like I do bake quite often and it would never even come into my mind that I do like baking until I made this audience that I was actually a, a member of the segment and it says baking and I was like damn this 12 traits is is like very accurate <laughs> like how did you know I like baking and shooting awesome. like this is <laughs> that's amazing uh so and, about and that that's truly the thing like you like we, we for example we work with one one uh, game where we did a lot of benchmarking. Unfortunately, we didn't use you guys 12 trades on, on that one. We should have, because what we did, we like spent a lot of time on benchmarking and, and really figured out like had a really good hunch. Luckily we did like multiple different, like like from the like spec, like wide range from the spec spectrum. But, but, but basically uh, for example, I, I had a really, really good hunch. I, I thought I really hit the nail. Okay, this is a genre where uh, the demographics most likely like dogs and stuff, you know, uh, animals and, and none of the other games have IBs that like kind of lead lead the games. Uh, and I was 100% sure that if we, if we nail this thing down, it will, it will do great, complete opposite. What actually worked was like this plain newspaper type of look uh, and, the, and the, the one that I, I had high hopes for uh, the one with uh, the the dog <laughs> guiding guiding through did terribly, and this is this is exactly why you need to A/B test this before you you invest your your <laughs> uh, like hours into into fine tuning the dog, and and taking this even further is is to bring you guys in and and, and get these insights so that you don't even have to try the dog. <laughs> exactly. So so from dogs to IDFA depreciation. <laughs> like what like that's a let's let's talk that's a donkey bridge i don't know if that's a saying in in, uh, in 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 english but it is a finnish saying so let's use this donkey bridge to to go into the uh the next topic like what happens when when idfa depreciation occurs like joe you said 46 percent is all about creative optimization and even with the tests that that i'm running and i've run before that's truly it like you can have literally same looking creatives the other one might be slightly different and the difference might be sixfold when it comes to cpi so can you talk about you know what the idea of depreciation like what will be the effect on optimization of marketability in your opinion yeah so with the deprecation of idfa and i mean i think it's not as scary as what everybody makes it out to be so i think i just want to maybe anchor on that you know, there still is Google and Android. Um, and I think what that speaks to is a lot of people are afraid of going back to the world of television where we can't 
track, you know, whether it's ROAS in the case of games, um, but you know, our LTV understanding, how do we track this sort of stuff? Now, maybe what's important to bring up just first off is, you know, there will be this SCAD network and there will be ways to basically use telemetry to kind of still get at ROAS and get at some of these facets. So targeting and tracking isn't completely gone. Like it's not destroyed, um, you know, companies like Singular to bring them up are working on these types of solutions, um, but they even said it themselves, it's not gonna be good at as good as where we are at today. Now, Google is still flying under the fence with a lot of this. And they're basically saying, you know, people can still opt in, like people can still opt in to have their IDFA tracked and, and traced. So there will be ways to use data science to get to signal, to do targeting, to do tracking. But what I think is really important about this is IDFA has allowed us as an industry to become incredibly lazy. And what I mean by that is targeting and, and tracking has allowed us to basically count advertising dollars where we know money in and money out. And for that, it makes it very a very comfortable thing to spend um, when you know dollars in, dollars out. Now, this is time and time again, market study after market study. Yeah, 46, 47%, depending on the what you, you know, what you read, is of the contribution of sales lift from advertising comes from creative. So what we've created through the IDFA world is a world where there's a very scarce. So if we think of there's 100% of the gold and 9% of the gold is mined through targeting. Everybody is trying to mine all that gold in that space that's only 9% of the, of the map. And we have 50% of the map over here, which is creative optimization. No one's good at it. No one's mining it. No one even tries to understand it anymore. This is this is, you know, McCann, Ogilvy, this is the madman, this is the old days of advertising, right? And I think we do a disservice to our customers as well by, honestly, like we see a lot of, we work with, um, yeah, most of, or a lot of the larger mobile game companies now and outside of mobile games as well. And I don't want to say this in a mean way, but a lot of the ads that we see come through the system, it's not good advertising. And to speak to that, like uh, Ogilvy, um, you know, he said, good advertising is truth well told. And, you know, I don't think the people that are coming up with the, you know, multiple or the plethora of creatives to just throw out an A-B testing wall are really thinking of how do I make creative that actually resonates with my core audience? And so, you know, we'll still be able to target and track ROAS with some signal. So that's not going away. But the future of IDFA deprecation is going to sway the power back to the creatives and back to interest-based um, information and interest-based targeting. So, you know, lookalikes, these kind of things for all the, and, you know, who knows, App, uh, Google, I think, is on the sidelines watching how it all goes. And if it goes well for Apple, they'll probably follow because consumers, if consumer behavior change to being more mindful of privacy and being more mindful of this stuff, it'll follow. Um, and I think what's interesting is like for our tool, for example, uh, we have cohorts. So you get the option of pushing a group into Facebook, for example, that is either you can make a lookalike from them or you can build an interest-based group off of them. And to your point, so we'll know all this psychological data on the person. And then it literally is like going back in time because we, we know most of the Facebook stuff too. So we'll know like persona one in first person shooters likes baking persona two doesn't like baking. So that's not list. They like Motley Crue. Uh, I don't know. You know, so like that kind of stuff will actually get 
pushed into Facebook. And so targeting from that respect is going to go back to interest. And then from a creative perspective, here's a good example. We had a game that was eight years in the app store. It used to be a top grossing game. They had AB tested the hell out of all of their assets, um, which can kind of be sometimes like boiling the ocean um, to Yessa's point earlier. Um, and they used 12 traits and even just a very simple version of, of they looked at their most, their highest gay engaged group. And specifically they had a really high value around family and togetherness. All they did was make an app store basically page that had the characters in the game more in a family dynamic. And they'd landed on one thing that they thought they couldn't A-B test anymore. They thought this was in eight years, the best thing. Um, and when they launched that, they basically got a 34% uplift above anything that they'd ever had in the app store page from that creative. Now, I think what our goal is and our job is uh, between you know, the future of advertising is to make creative not scary. Make it not feel like it's this um, black box of let's just try to like paint different things or draw different things and see what works. Let's go back to the world where we can tell you, you know, you're the master tailor. Here are the things that your engaged users really love. And that's one way to actually do um, target-based marketing is to make creative for people that you know resonates with your most engaged group and then doesn't resonate with the people that are maybe the less engaged users. Like very case in point, we have a casual game that grew to 2 million DAU that we work with very, very quickly. And um, if you go to demographics like men, for example, uh, who were in the game, actually, when you looked at the different site groups, it was all out of the three major groups of men that played the game, which is only 20% of the population, two of the groups were much lower on competition, much lower on fearlessness, much lower on dominance. So you're thinking like, you know, oh, men are, you know, we, we have all these super biased ideas of reality. But the men in that game were like, they were the submissive ones. There was one group of women who were like part of the major groups. They were like super dominant, super competitive. And you know that made only like 17% of the population. But if you're now making creative to say, you know what, we would like some more men in our experience because now we're 2 million DAU, the type of creative you would need to make for those men, um, which is a way through the IDA def deprecation creative and um, understanding their interests. And you know that's what TikTok, Snapchat, they still use the interest-based stuff. So it's just gonna go back to that. And it wasn't that it was bad before. Um, it's just now I think what's the end result is um, the users themselves are gonna get better ads because of, because of this. And a lot more focus will be on how do you make ads? Um, and this is where I think Yessa can speak to this. Um, where you can give back data to customers on these are the types of creatives now that are going to be resonating with your, your audience and actually target your audience properly through the creative. Yeah. Uh, I, I, before we go jump into like what alternative ways there is to, to measure things after, after the RDFA deprecation happens, like I, I, I really have to agree with practically everything you said. And, and I might be a bit naive, but I think that at the end of the day, what will happen is that the ad quality will again overcome the quantity. Because now what, what, what's what been like the common trend is that especially like 
networks like Facebook really like they they require a lot of ads and and of course like putting in high production value ads uh, like five five times a week is is practically impossible unless you have like a army of animators in house uh, so yeah I truly think that that now because we we lose that actually Facebook did release just like uh, at the end like a couple of days ago like their sort of documentation on on how they will prepare for idea prepare for IDFA and and one of the things that they said as well was that like they will also limit the amount of campaigns that you can actually run to iOS 14 users based on like the Scott network so that again like kind of shows that we're going back to sort of the more traditional marketing uh, and advertisement uh, because yeah at the end of the day like it's 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 still the same amount of people watching the ads it's the same amount of available ads like uh, spots on, on their newsfeed they they still like the same games if someone truly likes like a first person shooter they will still like that first person shooter like none of those things will change what will change is like how we can actually access uh like that that ad space so yeah it will, it will definitely come back to to us, I, us being a, able to do things on, on the creative side yeah i have a question so <clears throat> you, you guys talked a lot about creativity and, and it came to my my mind kind of came let me start again so what i started thinking about was my interaction with gonzalo who's um who's heading He's a CMO of Tactile, so shout out to Gonzalo. But um, his background is in advertising industry. And when you look at Tactile's Lily's Garden ads and what he was a lot talking about in, in other podcasts as well as in our conversation was, was how he operates his creative team. And it's not that perform, like they have the performance division, but they have also a creative team that focus on being creative, on creating messages for that audience. And then really having those long meetings where they can just actually like brainstorm um, and, and a lot of other things. So I, I'm hoping I can record a podcast with him because his, his, uh, his way of running a marketing team is very different because of his background in advertising. So my question for you guys was like, do you believe that the role of a, of a CMO or whoever is in charge of performance marketing is that going to change a little bit since now you're not so reliant on, on data, but you, you are still, but you, now you need to be actually more creative as well. Or is that like a new role that is going to be very important, like a marketing creative director? I, I do think so. Like you, you could have been like a really number focused person running a full marketing team, which 10 years back would have felt like quite, surprising uh but but i i guess now like you we, we get back to the point where you really need to be creative uh rather than like really optimizing based on on these different data points so therefore yeah i, I do think there will be a change in the upcoming years if, if not already actually yeah i think you know back to the you know Ogilvy, I go back to, he's one of my favorite um, marketing marketing folks. Um, and in a previous life, I was a, a UX director at McCann Erickson. So I did a lot of that type of marketing. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things he, he said was in the future, marketing will be a lot like um, a friend just kind of giving you a tap on the shoulder and giving you a gentle recommendation. 
it won't feel like you're being advertised to or sold. Um, it will feel a lot more comfortable. And I think our job is to actually create relevance for our customers because we don't want people seeing ads that they're not going to click on. You know, it just the spraying and praying that whole model um, of kind of cheap advertising is what we we were just working within the framework that is Facebook and Google and what was effective for us as studios from a cost perspective. And what that did was pull, um, especially I think apps in the, the mobile industry and gaming industry away from quality, you know, and, and towards quantity um, because you could get the numbers and you could get the metrics and you could get the installs. And then you use the quality through the game itself. And what I've noticed is when I, I was actually shocked when I first came into the gaming world and learned about what um, CMOs and VPs of marketing were in games, because I came from like the McCann world of VPs of marketing. Like these are like these like Don Draper mythical characters who are like <laughs> creative geniuses. You know, I, I just talked to um, the, one of the founders of um, Crispin Porter uh, and, you know, he was a early, you know, advisor at Lyft and, um, we were talking about, he's like, yeah, I want to do this sort of street sign thing in America. Everyone puts these campaign signs all over their yards. What if we just put like a sign that said like, I'm purposely trying to like people make people hate me or like, I want to create division between my neighbors and myself. And I'm just, you know, I'm sitting here and I got to be surrounded by that. And I got to see what campaigns that were like that, what they really, really did. And I think this is an important um conversation in terms of the role of the CMO, because uh, I used to work with an individual who headed up um, the game design efforts for uh, Machine Zone for Game of War. And one of the things he mentioned was, you know, those Super Bowl commercials that we did, a lot of that had to do with the fact that we literally felt like through Facebook, we completely, um, basically we spent all the money we could have spent. So like we didn't have anywhere else to go. So we had to go to more of these less trackable things. But when we did that kind of stuff, we saw incredible amounts of lift in the game in terms of, and, and so, you know, it's, I get, it's kind of the scary because we're, we're going into this untrackable world, but I think the role of the CMO in games, what we'll, I think what we'll see is with very, very large organizations, like maybe your EAs, your Activisions, they'll have, um, you know, a person who sort of splits into like a, a VP of, if we're actually dividing all these different, you know, the contribution of sales lift from advertising, there will be a VP of targeting, there'll be a VP of reach, there'll be a VP of brand, there'll be a VP of creative. And then the CMO's job will be to, because if we're looking at, this is where I'm spreading my marketing dollars, um, and I have it here, so I'll just cite it for people, but it's across basically every sort of platform, you know, 47% of marketing uplift is from creative, 22% reach, 15% is brand, 9% targeting, 5% recency, 2% context. And so if we're dividing our army up to conquer each of these categories, um, where targeting has been, I think the, the CMO or the VP has been so focused on, you know, maybe targeting and reach um, within, within most mobile organizations. And so now I think a CMO or a VP of marketing is going to have to Either they'll either come from, and I actually um, just saw this recently, talked to an individual uh, at Activision who he came from 72 and Sunny. He came from that creative ad world. And so I think we'll see more of the uh, CMOs and VPs of marketing 
coming from that reality or coming from the, the pure tracking, pure targeting reality, and then maybe having a support system that's related to, to creative. And I think that's the future of the CMO, um, not just in gaming, uh, but also just apps and um, apps in general. Yeah. Mm, got it. So, um, so when we're talking about creating audiences, like what are certain alternative ways um, the publisher should, should look into it when, when creating those audiences. So yes, so you, do you have uh, experience in that? Yeah, yeah. So, so obviously we do not really know what will happen up until it happens. So, so we don't know exactly the full implications of IDFA, but as of, as of now, the information we know now, like a lot of things have, like disappear. Like for example, the possibility to fingerprint user inside the apps and so forth so like it'll get tougher um but but there will still be alternative ways like for example the signing options uh like that will remain so if you if you uh, have a huge inventory if you're a big publisher and you have a huge inventory or, or of users uh, and you have your like internal way of of uh or signing you can you can still use that data and then also like i, I think we should remember because a lot of the blogs that I read and and, and uh, these awesome Twitter threads uh, also kind of highlight that that Facebook is in trouble. But at the same time, I do think that they like we have to remember that they also have their their own signing. They have so much data that even though they might lose the opportunity to get like back the uh, like ROI on a, or or give that information to advertisers uh, on on a user level. Uh, and creative level data uh, for all the creatives it's it's still like they have all that behavioral data inside um so it it comes down to how we can then utilize these these uh options for example one alternative is that like the the web alternatives will remain like we, we have all the web technology so for example one thing you can do well, with with our tool is when you have this proxy in between. So basically, uh, for, for by the way, anyone who doesn't know yet, who's listening. So what our tool does is, is it allows you to create lookalike pages between uh, your ad and then the real app store. Or if you don't have the app out, so then you can have a survey after the after users click install. But uh, when, you, when you have our, our page in the between as a proxy, so now in the future, maybe it's, it's, it's not only uh, for like finding the best alternatives and running actually an optimization test, but it can also be a, a tool for you to, for example, shoot in back Facebook pixel events uh, to your, your, your Facebook account, ad account and, and sort of keep on building your, your custom, custom audiences and, and your own lookalikes based on that. So th there will be still like technologies like this that, that you, can, you can utilize and, and try to make the most of. And in 12 trades, you're essentially, you already have audiences based on um, personas, right? Yeah, what's really cool, I think, about our tool is we allow you to actually, you know, perfectly GDPR compliant. We never know, like 12 trades, I think one of the beautiful parts about us is we never know who a person is in real life. So, and that's a part of our ethics. It's a part of our core ethos of we believe that real identity should be detached from online identity. Like, even before GDPR happened, that was like already something we had we had built. Um, and so with our cool tool um, currently, 
you can you can still create a lookalike audience because that still exists today. Um, but you can also create basically there are what we do is um, how our algorithm works is we find effectively enduring traits about people. We measure about 650 traits on an individual. Um, and then we take that data and just like the Harry Potter sorting hat, we say, okay, here's all these sneaky people who are really driven that Slytherin. And so it'll basically create a group around that. Um, and then it stops when there's no more new groups within the system. And then you can micro segment from there. You could say, I wanna see all the high LTV people who answered this survey question that I sent out um, and who are they? And it's like, okay, there's two groups of these people, for example. But what we allow for, um, and we're, we're doing this across other networks very soon here, we're launching a new product called Frequency, which is basically our, our marketing suite. And what you can do then is you can launch what we call a saved audience. So let's say I have first person shooter game, and it turns out there's four major groups within first person shooters. And I see that group one is by far the most engaged, highest LTV, makes up 20% of the first person shooter market. Um, and I see, but they're actually from a personality perspective, they're a little different. You know, they're actually, we had one first person shooter game on 19 year old males, highest scoring trait out of 600 traits, altruism. Not what you'd literally expect for a 19 year old dudes who wanna blow stuff up. Um, and that game actually launched an ad of showing um, a person helping another person before they got killed. And then like using a med kit to like heal their friend. And that ad blew everything else out of the water. Who would have um, known that saving private Ryan is actually a popular theme. <laughs> exactly. And then, and then still today. So before IDFA goes away, they could actually track those people when they came into the game and they're like, yep, we're actually acquiring those IDs because then our, our algorithm can put those people in buckets through the behavior data. Um, but then I think what's important, so we actually have done this now several times where customers will A-B test, like we have our lookalike model, let's actually do the, the 12 traits segment. So you can push on like group one and push to Facebook. And like uh, Mishko was mentioning earlier, it'll, everything we know about this person that Facebook can accept. So, you know, for anybody who's seen the, like the social dilemma, and I think they told people that Facebook knows all this psychological stuff about us. Uh, it's not totally true. I'm sorry to disappoint, <laughs> um, but I am in touch with people at Facebook and they've asked like, how can we use 12 traits uh, for example, but you know, we're not going down that path. So we'll park that for now. But <laughs> we, we don't pull from Facebook, but we do push because we know basically this trait profile of a user in aggregate form. And then we know what are the average hobbies? What are the average favorite games of, and that's where like, you know, first person shooter, we'll push an audience to, to Facebook sometimes. And one of the favorite games will be like Toy Blast. And people are like, what? And it's, yes, on, uh, if we look across that whole group, Facebook, one of, uh, Toy Blast was one of the top favorite games of that group within the first person shooter. And what we found actually, it gives us in a lot of ways, um, Facebook's kind of like a black box. It's a way of reverse engineering the process. So we know, for example, I'm gonna use um, Lord of the Rings as an example. So if I like Lord of the Rings and Facebook knows I like Lord of the Rings, it's more than likely that they'll put me into a lookalike audience that is all Lord of the Rings people because they assume if you like Lord of the Rings, you like all these other fantasy-based sort of things. And now you're competing from an ad spend 
with all the other people, not just games, but all the other products and services that are competing for the attention of a Lord of the Rings person, so to speak. Because Facebook's algorithms are all optimized around interests. Mm -hmm. With traits, if I have this very specific set of interests, um, likes Toy Blast, likes baking, uh, skis, uh, other favorite game is Final Fantasy, whatever, and you push that into Facebook, what we've seen time and time again um, consistently is the ROAS that comes from the Facebook, the target groups from 12 traits performs better than, than ROAS from other, other target groups. And that's not even with doing the creative part yet. So I think if you talk to a lot of people in a post IDFA world, they'll say the two main ways to get to your person will be through interest-based targeting and creative. And those are the things that at 12 Traits um, we can help with. And we make it really easy just to, as you mentioned, Mishka, you just click a button and the audience is, it appears. And then the next flow from that is kind of the handoff to, to Yessa, where then you can start doing your A-B testing. And, and like, I, I truly think that with all, all this said, like the, the role of marketability will become even, even like more important, like post IDFA than it, it is, it is now. And, and like Miska introduced kindly in the beginning, like our, our combination, the Molotov cocktail is actually like, it's extremely important to do this now, like before you, you jump into the action, because like you mentioned, you can still like create these lookalike audiences. You can push these to Facebook and you can run these tests among your target audience. So it kind of flips the coin in a way that like it used to be so that you, you launch a product and then you start to gather data and based on that data, that loop of feedback, you, you actually start to optimize things. But now it's even more important than because you still have technology to, to do these things and validate these things uh, before you launch the app. So maybe even more than, than after you launch it. So, so therefore like pushing like the, the audiences from your tool, uh, truly testing it with ours, that's, that's how you can really uh, make a successful product. And, yeah, and yeah. kudos to Miska for, for jumping on that. Yeah, so, so basically you're saying that the role of marketability is going to be more important in post-IDFA era because, because of the limitations that is set to sort of a data-driven, not everything will be data-driven, everything is data-driven, even, even um, you know, top of the funnel advertising is data-driven, yep. TV and so forth, but, but it would be less uh, programmatic if, if yeah, yeah. that's not the case. Yes, and, and then, then like also marketability as, as it means about appeal. So, so now that we lose the ability to, to go specifically to, to individual users, we know that will convert and, and spend a lot of money. Uh, so in pre-IDFA like world, world we, we, we could create like really, really niche audience with like bad marketability, if you will. But, but you knew that like it, it had good marketability, but just with that niche audience, but because you can't access that anymore, the role of like truly being able to making, make appealing uh, games for a bit wider audience and, and overall appealing will, will become more important. Yeah, maybe just to like really quick example, like, you know, both having made games and being on the other side and we see lots of games getting made right now from a lot of the top developers out there. And I think this is a transition phase. So there's a 
you know, in the corporate world, um, a change management process that's actually taking place. And I think the companies that are at the forefront of this change management process are the ones we're going to see become winners in terms of launching new games. Because if we look at a lot of the, you know, let's, we don't have to name them, but there's been an acquisition um, reality that's been happening where uh, these companies have been acquiring smaller studios that create hit games as a means of creating their future, as opposed to developing these games internally. And I think this is, you know, it's the spray and pray thing. And, um, you know, Mike Capps, the former Epic CEO, he said something like, you know, if, if you gave me my favorite developers in the world and you gave me $20 million, I could not guarantee you a hit game. No way. It's just too luck-based at this point. And so there's this, you know, and part of that is the, the data and the intelligence of, if you look at the number one reason why a game fails is they don't hit their target audience. They don't know their target audience. Um, that's the number one reason. And so, and if you talk to the average, I encourage um, every manager, every, uh, you know, your VP, whatever you are at a company, go to your team and go to each individual. Who are we making this game for? And write down what they say. And um, you will find, I've never seen a company get this one right, a lot of different ideas. And if you're sailing a ship in a certain direction and every sailor thinks you're going to a different destination, no wonder internal teams don't have these really good success rates. And so I think with that switch, one story that I just want to highlight really quickly on um, yeah, Yessa's point and marketability is it's this infamous story of GoPro and Contour cameras. It's not a gaming story, but it's an important tale. And I think it, it applies to us. You know, Contour camera, it was a better product. It was first to market. Uh, I was really good at, at, you know, filming kind of when I'm out, you know, surfing or biking or doing this different stuff. On the other hand, GoPro was light, quick, fast, tested, focused on marketability. And basically in the end, completely from a, from a market perspective, crushed Contour. They literally obliterated the company with an inferior quality of product, but a product that had better marketability, better product market fit. And then they were able to double down. And then now, of course, a GoPro is much, much better than, you know, a contour. We're not talking about where the camera industry is going today, because that's a whole other story. But I think it's a, it's a cautionary tale of what happens when um, I call it like kind of the, the golden tablets, where sometimes a game designer might come back and, you know, they had this, they slept, they had this great night, they drank a few beers and they're like, I have the most genius idea in the world. And it, it could be a really incredible idea, but then it's kind of like the woman who wrote Hands Maid's Tale, where she said, you have an idea, you create a story and inevitably the market decides what the story is actually about. And it's never about what you wrote the story about, the world decides. And I think marketability is the bridge in between the two. And what Yessa and I think are really talking about here is, um, one of our clients said this, said this to us was before 12 traits, I felt like whether it was game design, marketing, et cetera, I had like three shades of gray. Now I have a full color palette. I think it goes back to game designers, marketers at game company, UA folks at game companies. There's so much creative genius and juices and potential that I think it's actually sad that we kind of <laughs> switched to targeting or, you know, these sort of like reduced models of amount of brain power that's there. And I think giving and empowering those that color palette and then being able to, you know, go to Yessa and not have to try to boil the ocean and say, 
hey, yes, we have 1,000 pieces of creative. Like, can we A-B test all these? But to your point, um, Miska, which was, hey, we created these really specific creatives off of our highest growth and target audience. Now, yes, can we test these from a marketability, whether we're looking at, and, and also what comes into this is right theme, um, you know, uh, mechanics where, you know, and all this comes together because let's not kid ourselves that marketability also has to do with when they land and use it, it also has to stick. So, and that's ultimately what we, we want um, as a good marketer, we want a product that we can get to stick. So I think that's really an important, um, you know, point to with the marketability piece and targeting and post IDFA deprecation, what this is really going to be about. All right, maybe, maybe, yeah, go ahead. Go are ahead. we yes. running out of time? No, we're, we're never running out of time. This is a podcast. It can go for 15 <laughs> right. hours if you want to. <laughs> Don't give me that chance. All right. Uh, so, no. Um, so, so we've been talking a lot about like, if, like first person shooters and maybe strategy games. And, and last time I, I, I was uh, like on this podcast, we, I also said that like, for example, conversion optimization is, is extremely important for mid-core titles because like usually the, the, there's a bigger mismatch between the ad and then the store and eventually what the game actually is. But goes back to really understanding who your target audience is. Right after the podcast, we, I, I, I really took up on the challenge and I, I wanted to do the same, act, the same exact exercise for a hyper-casual game and, and see if, if we can actually improve already stellar uh, conversion rates because the the ad is exact exactly what the the store looks like so it, it came down to the fact that we, we again like broke down the audience in terms of like their motivations uh 12 traits <laughs> and 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 figured out like and, and made specific creatives for for each of these so so their current one was more about like the destruction whereas uh eventually the one that ended up winning was in completion and especially on the uh, like rewards side of it so so you 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 collect just like a lot of diamonds was the was the gist of it so kind of with that and and us optimizing like directly towards uh, a specific motivation that we knew that the target audience had uh, we were able to improve like a conversion that was already 65% up to over 70%. So, so, and, and, you know, in hyper casual numbers, it's, it's tiny, tiny differences like that, that really make the difference. So uh, there's truly stuff to achieve when you, when you deep dive into the traits of your audience and then, then test and, and find the best, best possible alternatives. Yeah, so I, I wanted to conclude this by the, the, the reason for doing this podcast is really sharing knowledge. And a lot of the time, especially with the smaller studios, they think that they don't have the resources to do this. And a lot of even startups, I see a lot of pitches coming in and and the way they analyze the market is that they either look at the circles from Deconstructor of Fun and they're like, this is a $3.2 billion genre and it's going to grow by this and we like these games and this game is going to be on xy axle it's going to come here and these are just it's a good start but it doesn't tell you who the audience is it doesn't really you know you're competing with feature on feature you're not really understanding what you're doing and you don't really have any kind of attraction metrics to prove that you're heading to the right direction now you would think that it would take a lot of resources to do this but it doesn't i wanted to do this podcast so that people want to understand 
how important it is to test marketability early and how goddamn easy it is. Because, well, with 12 traits, you understand the audience. With Geek Lab, you don't even have to have the game to test your marketability. And with all the, all the you know, whether you use Unreal or whether you use Unity, the asset stores are fantastic. You can buy all kinds of assets for a dime. You can put them together into a scene. You can even make a playable if you wanted. But even with the stills, you can create all kinds of assets. And all you need to do is a little bit of a pain over, not a little bit, sometimes a lot, and outsource that if you don't have a great concept artist internally. Like it's not that hard to find a concept artist to outsource a paint over, over a created scene. But it all starts from understanding the audience first and then using these tools that are available that are not that expensive compared to the immense amount of information you will get, but also the de-risking of your whole project. It's not about finishing your game. It's not about the timetable. It's about, can you make a game that can scale? That's in the end, the question. And if you don't have marketability, your game will never scale. So all the effort will go to vain. So that was the idea for this podcast. I just wanted to kind of share my personal experience of using both of the tools together and explaining that you don't have to have a big team to do this. We did it with a, with a small team, with one artist that didn't even do any concept artists like I outsource the concept art part. So, you know, it's concept arts are not that expensive to outsource as long as you can make the scene. So that's, that's my rant to the end. Uh, <laughs> and final words for you guys, how can people get in, get in touch with geek lab? Yes, sir. go. Like super simple, go to geek lab that app. Uh, by the time we, we release this podcast, we, we hopefully have our zero dollar, monthly plan available as well so you can jump in and, and you get like a free test for life um, and, and just jump in into the action sign up on the site you don't even have to put in payment credentials that's that's how easy we want to make it yes is actually it. telling a little like that's a little bit of a wolf ticket i did <laughs> i did it <laughs> like the most difficult part was that facebook pixel thing that you had to generate yep. it is a really really easy platform to use but I've never run campaigns before this, so it's kind of easy. Let's put it this way. It's yeah. kinda, even if you've never run campaigns before, you might need yeah. some help desk, but, but um, Geek Lab yeah. got you. So yeah, Joe, we're there. <laughs> and, and 12 Trace, like how can, how can people get, how, how can people understand who they're making game for? Joe. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, 12 traits.com, you can reach out to us through that or explore at 12 traits.com. And then from there, um, you know, really snap your fingers, whether it's a live game or a market game that's based off of our database, you can actually give us any parameters you'd imagine. And uh, yeah, we, we likely have the largest psychological database in the world that I know of at least. So from that, you know, whether you say we're making a mid-core game that's these four games and this is our market and it's these mechanics or it's just as simple as millennials who play a casino game um you know whatever whatever it is you can give us those parameters we can launch that audience for you and the turnaround time's like 24 hours so yeah. you can be holding and this is to maybe just to paint that picture quick um we had a customer who just paid nielsen eight hundred thousand dollars to do four months of research and what they found from nielsen was that um, their audience is 35 to 25 year old males that are motivated by mastery and like Instagram and, uh, don't, don't do that. So we'll like, we can, we I'm can, motivated by Instagram. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm baking. 
like we can we we know all that stuff but it's like you know like let's let's actually get you guys to have your core audience to have a seat at at the table for your development process so you know you can go to developing or designing or marketing with that person and and it's groups of people right cuz it's you know not just a demographic it's not just a midcore hardcore you know hyper casual it's not yeah and and it's good to remind people that you guys also have information on AAA as well so oh, it's yeah. not it's not only mobile games and that is important because you have information about games and people so it's every it's everything like we had someone from Adidas reach out to us and we were like we have 86,000 people that in our database that listed Adidas as one of their top 3 favorite brands <laughs> like you name it, we like it's there. Um, so it's just very rich and we're not gonna charge you what Nielsen or Accenture charges you to take eight months of research to <laughs> do one 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 thousandth of what you're gonna get on Paul Crate. So yeah, and we're, we're all here to just make better games to allow consumers to have far more incredible experiences. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's what this is all, all about too, so. Perfect. Yeah. Quality so over quantity. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And let's end it up. This Your tools are for companies, not for big or small. They're companies who are looking to make games that can scale. That's it. It yep. doesn't matter what size yep. you are. Yeah, we work with three-person companies all the way up to the all the big guys. Yeah. Same. All right. Have a good one, everybody. Connect with Joe. Connect with Yesa. And make games that scale. Bye, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks.